Hello, welcome to the first of what I hope will be a series of recordings focusing over a short format, maybe 20 minutes or so, on some given concept from philosophy, critical theory, political philosophy, Marxism, and so on. My name is Bill Cashmore. I'm a PhD researcher at Kingston University in London. Uh, I work mostly on Marxism and increasingly on Sylvia Winter. The aim of the recordings, I suppose, will be to provide some kind of basic explanation of what's going on with a given concept, but also perhaps to make some kind of intervention about the ways that we should be thinking through that concept. Um, so hopefully it won't just be there for those who aren't familiar with the concept, but also perhaps provide some engagement um, at the level of philosophical discourse around the proper use of these concepts, which we'll find fairly frequently. I've chosen as the first entry into this series, identity politics, which is by no means an easy concept, but it's one that is thrown around quite frequently, especially in popular discourse, perhaps of all radical terms that at least began radically. Um, it's the one that is now the most familiar to someone in the pages of The Telegraph or watching Fox News. So it's fairly well known that the term identity politics first appears in a statement made by the Combahee River Collective, a group of black lesbian socialists in 1977. Here is how they describe it. Merely naming the pejorative stereotypes attributed to black women, let alone cataloguing the cruel, often murderous treatment we receive, indicates how little value has been placed upon our lives during four centuries of bondage in the Western Hemisphere. We realise that the only people who care enough about us to work consistently for our liberation are us. Our politics evolve from a healthy love for ourselves, our sisters and our community, which allows us to continue our struggle and work. This focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end someone else's oppression. So here, the claim is fairly clear that there is a mode of oppression specific to black women that is irreducible to that experienced by, for example, white women or black men, but nonetheless is a function of both patriarchy and white supremacy, and they say later on in the piece, capitalism. Let me note at the outset that this description seems to be only ambiguously related to the concept of identity. There is little, it seems, in the claim that modes of oppression vary between social groups that requires anything to be said about identity per se. Indeed, what is striking throughout much of the literature understood to be in the tradition of quote-unquote identity politics is the disdain with which the concept of identity is actually treated. Everywhere it is the concept of difference, not identity, that is given precedence. At least for the writers of the Combahee River Statement, it is clear that identity amounts to something like the socially produced understandings of ourselves that we are given the moment we begin to interact with society. They are thus by no means radical by themselves. However, the understanding of these identities 
the reasons for their production, provide something like a liberatory moment. Quote, In our consciousness-raising sessions, for example, we have in many ways gone beyond white women's revelations because we are dealing with the implications of race and class as well as sex. Even our black women's style of talking and testifying in black language about what we have experienced has a resonance that is both cultural and political. An example of this kind of revelation or conceptualization occurred at a meeting as we discussed the ways in which our early intellectual interests had been attacked by our peers, particularly black males. We discovered that all of us, because we were smart and had also been considered quote-unquote ugly, i.e. smart ugly, smart ugly crystallised the way in which most of us had been forced to develop our intellects at great cost to our quote, social lives. That was a long quotation, but that's the end. Perhaps an even more famous example is Audre Lorde's famous improvised address, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Though again, identity here hardly ever appears as a concept. It is again, always difference. The differences between women oppose the difference between men and women, that is given the important role. Here, again, it is only in the acknowledgement of differences between the subjects of feminism that allows for the full understanding of what this liberation would entail. It is clear that, for Lord, while there may be incommunicable differences between the experience of people of differing identities, these differences are social phenomena whose concrete existence must be understood as a product of the totality of society. I want to note here a surprising heritage of Lord's argument. Listen to this quotation, first from Audre Lorde. Quote, Advocating the mere tolerance of difference between women is the grossest reformism. It is a total denial of the creative function of difference in our lives. Difference must not be merely tolerated, but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark like a dialectic. Without community, there is no liberation. Only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between an individual and her oppression. But community must not mean a shedding of our differences, nor the pathetic pretense that these differences do not exist. End quote. And now another quotation from a perhaps surprising source. Many dare not acknowledge openly that there still exist contradictions among the people which are the very forces that move our society forward. Many people refuse to admit that contradictions still exist in a socialist society, with the result that when confronted with social contradictions, they become timid and helpless. They do not understand that socialist society grows more united and consolidated precisely through the ceaseless process of correctly dealing with and resolving contradictions. For this reason, we need to explain things to our people, our cadres in the first place, to help them understand contradictions in a socialist society and learn how to deal with such contradictions in a correct way. End quote. Now you can play a game and try and guess who that is, but perhaps some of you will have realised that that's Mao Zedong, that old intersectional woke feminist, in his famous On the Correct Handling of Contradictions Amongst the People, 
Indeed, given Audre Lorde's proximity to the Black Panthers, and the extent to which the philosophy of the Panthers, particularly that articulated by Huey Newton, was influenced by Mao, suggests that when Audre Lorde refers to, quote, non-dominant as opposed to dominant differences, and that successful radical politics involves the acknowledgement and management of such non-dominant differences, she was, surreptitiously, we could think, rephrasing Mao's concepts of antagonistic and non-antagonistic contradiction, or at least to say that they were working in her thought. All this is to say that identity politics, at least at this moment, is an attempt to articulate a political subject that, rather than paper over differences with a merely abstract appeal to universality, whose idealism would be in danger of re-importing the particular but without recognising it, essentially presenting perhaps a vision of universality, but a vision of universality which is in fact still particular, and thus ideological since it doesn't recognise its true nature. Identity politics would attempt to construct a concretely universal subject of action, mediated always by the contradictions present in our oppressive actuality. Now perhaps someone would say, so far so good, but identity politics has now, in 2023, become about something else. It's now a merely corporate idea, part of capitalism. This begins, most might say, by the legal recoding of much of the concepts in identity politics in terms of intersectionality by Kimberley Crenshaw, wherein each line of oppression is supposed to intersect at various points. There's an interesting geometric uh, imaginary there. I'm going to mention again that it is unclear what relation this has to identity politics, but to fend off some now slightly tired critiques, I mention a couple of things. For one, we ought to uncontroversially admit that quote-unquote intersectionality has been successfully captured as a discourse of Western institutions which, in the mere recognition of the validity of certain identities, by no means accomplishes anything approaching a radical politics. This really seems to be the spectral existence of the symbols of identity politics without its spirit. No one seriously on the left is suggesting that M&Ms removing their colours for Pride Month, or Hillary Clinton referring to intersectionality in a speech to the Democratic National Congress, amounts to any real kind of progress on this front. Quite the opposite, really, since it substitutes the investigation of the constitution of identities in service of a broad coalition of radical politics with an apologia for the liberal actuality at the end of history. Moreover, one clear failure of strategy with identity politics is that these identities have been taken up and commodified so that what were initially political identities are just consumer groups. And indeed the discourse, we could say, is taken up as the grounding principle of the way that many of us are now thinking about identity, such that these identities are rendered exchangeable, removed of any real relation to the social totality that produces them. Now, in this case, the acknowledgement of identity is no longer related to a broader political project, and identity politics has therefore been thoroughly defanged. All that is solid melts into branding. It is this that many think identity politics has invariably become, 
And now there is perhaps no more repeated criticism than that of identity, or in those accounts that want to tap into the discourses provided out of the Murdoch press, and even spiked online, wokeness. But this is a case of institutional capture, and the interesting story for those who bemoan the influence of identity politics on the left would be the explanation of how this capture has taken place, rather than the claim that paying attention to the mediation of social reality by identities amounts to a failure to acknowledge something more real. It is worth noting that just because there exists an institutional discourse of identity that is clearly part of capitalist ideology, does not mean that identity is so in general. There is an institutional discourse of resistance, Hillary Clinton's campaign. There's one for freedom, equality, dignity, pretty much always as a function of private property. But this doesn't mean that radicals can afford to ignore those concepts. Indeed, opposing oneself to identity politics in this sense often means, for those making this kind of argument, that they accept the terms of a debate set by the forces of reaction and spend their time fighting spectres rather than looking for revolutionary spirit. One might be tempted to critically consider, then, the material content of the spectral discourse of anti-woke leftism, and what exactly would, in practice, distinguish this discourse from its more plainly conservative counterpart. Identity has, of course, become increasingly associated with queer, particularly trans, politics. Conceptually, Judith Butler's gender trouble is likely the legitimation for this inheritance, though its influence on anything other than campus politics is likely overstated. For once, identity really does appear as a key part of gender trouble's discourse. But only insofar as these identities are undermined by performative action, the subtitle is not Feminism and the Politics of Identity, but Feminism and the Subversion of Identity. Here, again, the attention to identity is made precisely in service of its, de of its destruction. In this sense, while Butler's conceptual innovations are not to be understated, the book stands in a clear political tradition of identity politics whose actualization would be the abolition of the identities of which it is made conscious. If identity politics is to refer to anything more than a spectral representation of what it once was, it is the claim that identities are not freely chosen, but given out of a structure of inherited meaning with which subjects negotiate their identity. It is a feature of capitalist society that you do not get to choose when you step outside it, and indeed to believe oneself outside of identity would merely make an identity out of a resistance to identity. And so perhaps the most easily and successfully commodified political identity on the left over the last few years has been that of the staunch opponent of identity politics. But this is no less a commodification of identity, no less an instance of personal branding. Now if Marx is to teach us anything, it is that since consciousness is determined by life and not vice versa, Thought has no unmediated relation to material reality. It is this which demands the sublation of thought in praxis, the call for a change in the world rather than its mere interpretation. After all, for Marx, 
Material reality is nothing other than the total totality of social relations, and thought is structured by capitalism, whether we like it or not. This is why it's so false, and indeed so dangerous for those who understand themselves as leftist, to believe that we can step outside of identity in favour of, of an immediate thought of the material realities of capitalism. All this will amount to is a re-importing of identity, but under a different guise, just a simple dogmatism. In the end, this critique of identity politics tends to give itself over to precisely a form of identity politics, one which attempts to articulate a version of quote-unquote working-class politics, built on little other than a mere representation. This is not to say that working-class politics and emancipatory, universal working-class politics should not be the focus, but rather the claim that an immediate relation to actuality has been achieved precisely serves to undermine this project. There is no more nor less authentic or identity or consciousness to which we can return, no left politics that has been lost in favour of woke identity politics. The only identity we can really affirm is our identification with non-identity. The absolute commodification of identity reveals the unreality of class as much as it does of race, sex, gender, or sex sexuality. I take it that this is one of the conclusions of Lukács' analysis of reification. Until we realise that we, too, all have an identity, we will continue to be doing nothing other than an intervention at the level of consciousness. This is what, unfortunately, the, quote, left opponents of identity politics so often have in common with its institutional liberal proponents. They fail to understand the material reproduction of consciousness in capitalist societies, and thus summon spectres rather than revolutionary spirit. That's to say nothing of vampires or castles. Identity politics, in its proper mode, amounts to a comprehension of the mediation of these identities by social totality, and this mediation is ultimately revealed to be precisely their ground. Their concrete existence is nothing other than the social relations that produce them. But we will not understand capitalism's grip upon us unless our politics begins with identity in a process of its abolition. We must absolutely be critical of any attempt to divorce identity from material relations. In this sense, we should, of course, be critical of identity politics. But perhaps we can make an identity politics worth its salt in making it always equally a non-identity politics, one which affirms the falsity of the given. Let me finish, at last, with another quotation from Audre Lorde. It is not those differences between us that are separating us. It is rather our refusal to recognise those differences and to examine the distortions which result from our misnaming and their effects upon human behaviour and expectation. See you next time.